World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. The United Kingdom isn't always as united as the name suggests. Back in 2014, a referendum on Scotland's independence failed by just a few points. Now there are signs that nationalism in Wales is on the rise, and a decades-old bit of graffiti provides a clue. And our correspondent finds himself in a Chinese factory that makes chairs, but not just any chairs. These beefy seats are to be found in every one of the country's halls of power. And it turns out that how they're arranged in a room is an indication of how negotiations will play out. But first, my colleague Anne McElvoy has been looking into the news from the weekend. After a year of talks, America and the Taliban seemed on the verge of making peace. Last week, an American envoy said a deal had been struck and both sides were waiting for President Trump to approve it. The deal would have seen American soldiers leaving the country in exchange for the Taliban reducing violence and refusing assistance to al-Qaeda. But over the weekend, President Donald Trump abruptly halted the negotiations, tweeting that he'd called off a planned secret meeting with Taliban leaders and the Afghan president at Camp David. He cited a recent bombing by the group that had killed 11 Afghans and one American soldier. The American Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, re-emphasized that withdrawal from Afghanistan remains a priority for the Trump administration. The 30-plus billion dollars a year that we're spending there is not a sustainable model, and he wanted to reduce that. The president campaigned on a promise of getting American forces out of the country. It's a huge priority for him to get out of Afghanistan. It's popular. There's elections coming up in the United States. He's promised to do so. He sees it as a a sort of pointless campaign. Shashank Joshi is The Economist defense editor. Why he's done it now, why he's pulled out so close to fulfilling that promise, I think there are two theories. One of them is domestic politics. That is, he's got a lot of flack at home, both from within his administration. People like Michael Pompeo, the Secretary of State, John Bolton, the National Security Advisor, are opposed. Also, people like Lindsey Graham, friendly Republican voices, uh, have said this is a betrayal, this is wrong, he'll cause a civil war in Afghanistan. He may have simply got cold feet and found an excuse. The other reason is perhaps that An American soldier died in in a bombing that we saw. There have been many, many bombings in Afghanistan over the nine rounds of these negotiations. But this one killed an American soldier. And for Donald Trump, that may have been too much. So how unusual was it for the president to invite the Taliban to Camp David? It's incredibly unexpected. First of all, that you would have the Taliban, an an Islamist group that harboured Osama bin Laden, meeting in the inner sanctum of presidential power, Camp David, just days before the anniversary of September 11th. So the optics of that are surprising enough as it is. But I think it's also very surprising that the Taliban should be willing to meet not only with the president of the United States, but also with the president 
of Afghanistan, who they have uh, said is an American stooge, a puppet. So if Donald Trump is correct that the Taliban were willing to meet in this sort of uh, three-way format, I think that would be incredibly surprising. These negotiations have been going on for months, for years, really. Uh, How much more significant than previous talks would this cancelled summit have been? I think we would have seen the culmination of nine painstaking rounds of negotiation over a year, uh, years of back-channel talks before that, and all of it, in a way, bringing to almost culmination 18 years of grinding American war in Afghanistan. So this, I think, would have been the point at which uh, we would finally have seen an American president have a reasonable diplomatic course to get out of Afghanistan. How did this kind of field of play look? The negotiations were between the US and the Taliban, but they were being conducted outside Afghanistan. Tell me roughly you know, who is basically doing what to whom and, and who has most to lose by what's happening now. Well, essentially, uh, America and the Taliban were talking to each other in the Qatari capital city of Doha. They had been doing so for months and they had been doing so without the participation of the Afghan government which wasn't even briefed until quite late in the talks. This was a withdrawal agreement by America uh, in exchange for some counterterrorism promises by the Taliban. Uh, The Afghan government, uh, uh, President Ashraf Ghani, was shown a copy of the agreement just after it was agreed, but the agreement was whisked away from his hands after he had read it, which I think gives you an indication of how little the Afghan government has been involved in this. And how has the Taliban responded to this move by Donald Trump? I think they're surprised. I think they're irritated. They're annoyed. They criticized America for pulling out because of one explosion, which they said shows a lack of maturity. They said talks had been going very well. And this was, for them, the opportunity, finally, to get Americans out of Afghanistan. So I think that they may have been a little bit irked that Donald Trump announced publicly that their leaders were going to turn up to America. Of course, they have their own domestic politics. That's bad for them. And they may have been annoyed that Donald Trump also said they'd be expected to meet the Afghan president in America, which, of course, they said they won't do. So they're annoyed at the cancellation. I think they're also irritated at the sense that President Trump may have been trying to pull a bait and switch on them. And what about the Afghan government? What has their response been? Quite a complicated situation between the government and the Taliban as it stands. They are furious at having been left out of these talks at having been treated as some sort of uh, irrelevant partner in all of this, even though the future of their country is at stake. They agreed to go to Camp David on the basis that failing to do so would make them look like the spoilers rather than the Taliban. Um, But of course, now uh, Ashraf Ghani has been somewhat humiliated. Uh, He's been left high and dry. And really, I think they are probably a little bit pleased at the end of the day that things have slowed down, that America has been disrupted from its plan to get out fast, that the deal isn't going to be signed. It buys them more time, I think, to impress upon the Americans the importance of saying, if you leave in a rush, you will unleash a civil war in this country that you won't be able to control. And that's been their major concern throughout. So at the end of the day, I think they're probably somewhat relieved. And is there any chance that this could, in fact, turn out to have been quite an effective negotiating tactic? The Taliban will really have to reduce violence or, shall we say, violence that could be directed against American forces if they have any hope of bringing home this deal with the Americans. I think it is partly a negotiating tactic. Of course, Donald Trump fancies himself as a master tactician. Both sides are keen to put the blame for escalating violence onto the other. But really, I think both sides understand violence is part of negotiation in this campaign. 
Mike Pompeo over the weekend stressed himself. He said American forces have killed over a thousand Taliban in the past 10 days. You know, a very Vietnam era type body count claim here. Uh, so I think America, just, as Tal- just like the Taliban, realizes you keep the pressure up on your adversary even if you negotiate. What I think is that talks are going to resume eventually once the Taliban commit to backing away from killing Americans and stick to killing Afghans, which Donald Trump is by and large okay with. Uh, But we're going to see a very violent few weeks as both sides establish we are not deterred by you walking away. What does this mean for Afghanistan moving forward, particularly for a very fraught domestic situation, regardless of the fact that the talks have been cancelled? Well, the Afghan presidential elections are due with impeccable timing on September 28th. It was already looking very improbable that these could pass off peacefully, calmly, effectively. Uh, and now as violence ratchets up, that looks even, even more improbable. The Americans had hoped that if they signed a deal and said, here's the glorious future of Afghanistan ready to be negotiated between Afghans, you wouldn't have to have elections. You could, you could push away that whole controversial question. Now Ashraf Khani will dig his heels in and say, we are going to have those elections come what may. And of course, it's going to occur in a period of really, really bad violence. And I think what that means is that his legitimacy coming out of those polls is going to be really bruised. And let me put you on the spot, finally, when would you expect the talks to resume, if indeed they do? I think they will probably resume before the elections. I think that we may see a, uh, a couple of weeks, but then we'll see people get back together quietly in the five-star hotels of Doha, uh, beginning to hash out some of these details again, seeing if they can put back together what the president has, has taken apart. Shoshank, thank you very much. Thank you. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. A few miles south of Aberystwyth, one of the westernmost cities in Wales, there's a lay-by just off the A487 with a crumbling wall painted bright red and in white letters it says, and forgive my pronunciation, Kofiak Dreveren, which means Remember Dreveren. Leo Morani is The Economist's roving Britain correspondent. Treveren is the name of a valley in North Wales. It had a little village in it called Capilkelin. And in 1965, Liverpool City Council drowned the valley after removing the residents to create a reservoir for the city of Liverpool. This was a huge issue in Wales at the time. The Welsh were not consulted. Their views were not taken on board. Westminster ignored the wishes of Welsh MPs and the people who lived in that valley were asked to leave. And in many ways, that single event kindled, if not rekindled, it kindled a sense of Welshness amongst the Welsh in the mid-20th century. That started campaigns for bilingual signs everywhere. It started the campaign for a Welsh-language television channel. It created a sense of Welsh identity as something separate from an English identity. And why is it in the news now? Earlier this year... In February, somebody in the dead of night vandalized the wall, painted the word in big capital letters, the word Elvis, 
all over it, which, you know, could be amusing if it weren't for the fact that this is a very important piece of graffiti and has tremendous value in the Welsh consciousness. As if that wasn't bad enough, a few months later, somebody tried to knock down the wall, which the local police, the Diffit Powers police, said they were investigating as a hate crime. As a result, people started painting the sign on walls across Wales. And what happened is that many Welsh people who had no idea about the story of the drowning of the valley... They had no idea about this wall in the first place. This story sort of came to a whole new generation. It's also fed in and sort of become the emblem for a very small but noticeable Welsh independence movement. Now, we talk about the risks that Brexit poses to the Union. Scotland has repeatedly come up as a nation that may go its own way when Britain leaves the European Union. On the part of Scotland, anyway, that's been kind of in the national consciousness for, for quite some time. And it's a fairly it's a fairly big movement, right? Is it the same in Wales? You're absolutely right. The Scottish movement is mature. It's very well developed. They've already had one referendum. The Welsh have had a much bumpier path even towards devolution. However, there have always been a small number, a really small number of people who were keyed on independence. That number has grown quite a bit from a very, very low base. So from 6% of respondents in a YouGov poll in 2017 to about 11% today. That is not directly the result of this wall, but the wall has become a sort of talisman, if you will. So is it that the Welsh want more independence, more self-governance, more sort of out of uh, the messy business of Brexit? It's very much, I think, the last of the three. The Welsh, as people up and down this country, are tired of the shenanigans in Westminster. They are very disappointed with the handling of Brexit. For a number of people, they think that if Scotland leaves, if Northern Ireland is reunited with Ireland, it sounds quite over the top, but they worry that Wales will then be subsumed into an English state. And that is sort of the fear aspect of their campaign, of their thinking, that we need to start planning now. They don't expect anything to happen anywhere in the near term. But the significant thing is that even in Wales, until very recently, if you talked about Welsh independence, you would get laughed at. You no longer get laughed at. So the thing with Wales that you have to remember is that Wales and England are more intricately entwined than any of the other nations in the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Scotland has its own legal system. Northern Ireland as well has various differences by virtue of being a different island and having been very differently run for a very long time. Wales has been run more or less from Westminster for several hundred centuries. Even today, you have the England and Wales Cricket Board, the Office of National Statistics, which covers England and Wales, and so on and so forth. Jan Morris, who's a famous Welsh writer, describes it as the oldest of the English colonies. Adam Price, who is the leader of Plaid Camry, the Welsh party, his book is called Wales, the First and Last Colony. The new Welshness that you're seeing in this nationalist movement is oppositional. It's saying it's not one that says we are Welsh and we are British. It is one that says we are Welsh. And that is an English thing over there. And so where do you see this going? I mean, the the notion of Scottish independence has risen very much in in the political agenda for for Westminster more than once. Do you see a similar kind of confrontation with Wales? Certainly not any time in the near future. I asked one campaigner for Welsh independence and he said that this is now something he sees as possible in his lifetime. We're not talking about a two-year, five-year, even 10-year horizon, but we're 
However, no longer talking about a hundred-year horizon. The wall has become a sort of talisman, but it is linked, as is everything else in this country at the moment, Jason, to Brexit. You might point out, as does everybody else, oh, but the Welsh voted for Brexit. It's true, they voted 52.5% to leave, a very slightly higher percentage than the national average. There's a couple of explanations for that. One is that they were venting anger at uh, Westminster, which was manifest in this vote, which is an explanation that's given for Brexit more broadly. Adam Price, the leader of Blade Camry, said it was the wrong answer to the right question of economic stagnation in Wales, which is a very, very important point because as an independent country, Wales today is not a viable state. It runs a massive fiscal deficit. It is a net recipient of funds from Westminster. Its economy is highly reliant on government. But that doesn't stop people from dreaming, right? So the argument in favor of independence is, well, we can be richer. We can strike our own trade deals. We can take back control. Some of this might sound a little bit familiar to you. But that's because at the end of the day, most movements like this have a lot more to do with identity than they have to do with economic facts. Leo, thanks very much for your time. Thanks for having me, Jason. As trade talks between America and China meander, market watchers are finding it increasingly difficult to predict the future of their relations. But our Beijing bureau chief, David Rennie, looks for a clue in an unexpected place. I first started reporting on Chinese politics 20 years ago, but this is, I think, the first time I've reported from a furniture factory. I recently travelled to the Tiantan Furniture Company just outside Beijing. It is the only company in the whole of China that makes the Jiang-style armchair. So reporting, or in just working in China, involves a lot of protocol, and protocol involves a lot of meetings in very formal meeting rooms. And the armchairs are often incredibly similar, and curiosity led me to discover that in fact they're not just similar, they're all the same chair. So what's so special about these chairs? It takes 20 days to assemble one, I was told, as I toured the factory. They're made from Chinese walnut. Red is the most popular colour, and they're very firm. So if you have sat in one for many hours, which is possible in a Chinese government meeting, you are sitting up pretty straight, and they have a special kind of foam padding right in the small of the back so that you can sit up straight and look very serious. So I was given a tour of the Tiantan factory by a manager, Wang Shangli. And he took me on a sort of tour of each stage of the production process. So there was an impressive amount of this very firm padding going into these chairs as people were stapling and drilling and hammering with power tools. And he told me that this chair is quite firm as is fitting for a leader. So, so what is it that's captured your interest about these chairs? Why, why did you end up in this factory? Well, it really came from listening to foreign diplomats and trade negotiators. And you suddenly realise that the way that the furniture is set out in a Chinese meeting room tells foreign negotiators quite a lot before they've even started speaking, whether this meeting is designed to end in a kind of deal or whether it's just the Chinese government stalling them because they're not willing to negotiate. And so there's basically two kinds of meeting rooms you can find yourself in when you turn up to do one of these big negotiations. One is a sort of fairly standard conference table with office chairs and you can get your papers out and negotiate line by line. And that's often quite a good sign. If you go into the room and instead it's this very, very formal protocol arrangement with a huge sort of silk carpet and at the end of the room an enormous painting of mountains and, and mist and maybe galloping horses, 
and then you have this horseshoe-shaped arrangement of overstuffed armchairs with the guest of honour sitting next to the host and then all the other officials lined up down the walls. The problem with that arrangement is it's impossible to get any real kind of line-by-line haggling over a treaty or a trade deal done in that room. You're in line for talking points and, you know, maybe an hour's opening remarks from the deputy minister who's hosting you. And so many foreign diplomats, if they walk in and see the horseshoe, their heart sinks to their boots. So if you go into a room and you see these chairs, you know you're in for hours of listening, not necessarily productive talking. I mean, are are they at least comfortable during that time? Actually, there's a twist, which is that these meetings in a horseshoe-shaped room are quite literally a pain in the neck because the guest of honour is sitting right next to the host of honour side by side. And so if they give you an hour or more of opening remarks, which is perfectly standard, you have to sort of sit with your head twisted through 90 degrees, nodding politely. The other kind of wrinkle that you hear from diplomats is that if it's a difficult negotiation and you want to make sure that your boss doesn't forget to mention a particular phrase, if you're sitting next to them at a meeting room table, you can scribble a note and slip it to them. But if you're sitting in the horseshoe-shaped armchairs down one end of the room, you literally have to decide, is this so serious that I have to stand up, take a note and walk all the way across that garish carpet and hand the note to my boss, which is quite a high bar. There's an interesting oral history project currently going on at Georgetown University in America called the US-China Dialogue Podcast. And someone who's done more negotiating with the Chinese than almost anyone on the American side is the former acting deputy US trade representative, Wendy Cutler. She talked about how they use almost kind of the physical exhaustion of American delegations against them. You would go to a meeting maybe 10 o'clock at night. It would take an hour for the Chinese minister to make his points. It was hard to keep going. And I always remember counseling US trade representatives that don't let them start or make sure not to fall into this trap. Don't ask them an open-ended question because they will go on and on and on. By the time you know, the meeting's over and you haven't accomplished anything. And so you think we could get a clue as to how things might be going with trade talks or how they will go simply by looking at the furniture in the room? That's right. I think that if you want to know whether the US-China trade talks are going to turn into a trade war or whether there might be a deal, I think it's perfectly reasonable to check the chairs. Since I wrote a Chaguan column about this, I cannot tell you the number of ambassadors and diplomats who have shared their painful memories of sitting in these chairs, including one who was in agony at hearing that the most common colour is red because he's only ever sat in beige ones. So he's now worrying that maybe he's never been in an important enough meeting to sit in a red chair. David, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.